Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. My name is Heine Sakharaisen. I'm the founder of Vivino. The world's most downloaded wine app. Vivino changed the billion-dollar wine industry. Now I help other builders change the world. I will call things as I see them. No filter. This is Raw Startup. Welcome to In the Know. This time I've got Heine Zakharaisen. Zakharaisen? Heine Zakharaisen. Zakharaisen, thank you very much for having me on. (laughs) Welcome. Welcome, and thank you for agreeing to talk with me and I guess uh, with my listeners. The In the Know series is getting up towards 30 episodes now, and I've been talking to all the different kinds of people that I bump into doing what I do, um, which is run Notel. Uh, this flexible office business we have that's now in lots of cities around the world. I was just in your city yesterday in San Francisco, where we <laughs> recently became number one in the flexible office uh, category. We, I think we have two or three times the number of locations of some of those other co-working businesses. Um, Very cool. Congrats. But I guess we're doing it by phone because I'm, I'm in New York now. What part of town are you in? So I'm, we're in financial, uh, just the center of, of San Francisco, uh, 100 Montgomery on the 20th floor. Fantastic. I um, was curious to talk with you about your wine business, Vivino. And I, you know, I wonder what a good way to introduce you is because, uh, Heine, you have been building this business, Vivino, for quite some time. I mean, basically your entire identity is now wrapped up in this global <laughs> wine information goliath. Am I, exactly. Am I right? Or, or that, there, is, <laughs> there is some truth to that. Um, we've been at it since uh, 2010, so it's been uh, quite a long time to uh, to build this thing. And I think when I when I grew up in the middle of the North Atlantic on uh, some islands with 50,000 people where the only industry is fish, I think uh, people would be surprised that my or anybody's identity from there would be uh, linked to the wine industry. Yeah, where are you from? I, when you said the middle of the Atlantic, I was sort of guessing that maybe you were from Northern Europe somewhere, but what islands are there? I mean, there's Iceland, I guess, or maybe you mean the UK, or are you talking yeah, about something else? Actually, we're going to compromise between those two. It's it's called the Faroe Islands. They are in between Scotland and Iceland, sort of a triangle between Scotland, Iceland, and Norway. Uh, 18 I've heard islands. of these places. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an amazing place. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And Anyone never gets a chance to, to get there, they should definitely go. Uh, latest news from there is that uh, we just got a, a two-star Michelin in the, in the Faroe Islands, which is interesting with a population of 50,000. That is probably the highest ratio of Michelin stars to population <laughs> of any exactly. jurisdiction in the world. Yeah. Do you, but who do you culturally identify with when you're up there? Do you feel Scottish or... Or no, you know, so like Swedish the, and Norwegian, Scandinavian, or you're your own people for a thousand years, and you don't like this question at all. <laughs> no, very much uh, own identity. So, um, uh, the Faroes are a sort of home governing part of Denmark, which means we have our our own small parliament and so on. Uh, but culturally, uh, completely independent, with own culture, own language, uh, and everything. And obviously, a culture or a language with fifty thousand people in the middle of Europe probably wouldn't survive, but since you're relatively isolated in the middle of, of the Atlantic, um, a culture can live and a language can live, which is, is quite unique. And you have wine in uh, the Faroe Islands? I think when I, there's definitely been wine. I'm sure like the monks lived there a thousand, year, thousand years ago. And I'm sure they brought some wine back then. But when I grew up, um, I think the culture is, is very much based on drinking beer and, and the, 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 
a thing called schnapps, which is based on aquavit. Oh, sure. um, yeah. Um, yeah, I was thinking it had to be aquavit. I mean, you got to get through the winter somehow. Yeah, exactly. Between exactly. Uh, some schnapps and aquavit, I guess that keeps people warm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but more and more wine now, for sure. Uh, you won't get the two Michelin stars unless you have a pretty decent wine list. Yeah. Well, honey, these are two big themes I want to explore. One is how to get big slowly, uh, and the other is how to stay small. Yeah. The um, sort of my kind of cover story for, for In the Know is I've been investigating with people who have built really big things, how to make something interesting that spreads and reaches lots of people. And um, you certainly have that as a signature achievement of your work with Vivino over the years. And now as we're talking, I'm realizing there's, an, uh, there's another interesting narrative about how to um, spread yourself over 18 islands for thousands of years and keep your language, <laughs> culture, identity, and then make some big contributions to the planet and what kind of trends have to come your way. And so we'll talk about your new favorite restaurant from your, your homeland at the right time. But why don't we, um, well, tell me more about Vivino. I, you know, I don't have the app, but I assume it's like an app that you use, like, you know, wine snobs in the early days were sort of taking pictures of labels or something like that. What's the origin story? I mean, sure, it, it was yeah. the early days of, of apps too, right? I mean, like mobile phones only started having real apps 2009 or so. Exactly. How did it happen? Yeah, I think uh, I want to jump into that right away. The timing is actually incredibly important when you do any sort of tech startup. And we really hit the timing really well as as these smartphones, iPhone and so on, were really started to kick off around 2010 when when we got going. Uh, but the, the core of the, the app and and... The reason why we started building it is, is because I'm not a wine guy, so I, I don't come from the wine industry in any way. Uh, just a casual wine drinker that loves wine and was really frustrated by walking into a supermarket and not knowing what to buy. Hey, what's good? What's bad? Am I going to make a call on this on the looks of the label? I didn't want to do that. Uh, so so the, the feature we built is, is a smartphone app for iPhone and Android. It's available freely. You can take a picture of any bottle of wine in the world and we'll give you all the information about it. And that's just been going incredibly well. We have 35 million users all over the world. Every single day, 20,000 people install the Vino and they look up around 2 million wines every single day. So extremely popular and really built for the sort of the casual wine drinker, although obviously a lot of people that know a lot about wine use Vivino too. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's unpack this uh, story a little bit. It's um, convenient and humble of you to sketch the story following the pattern of right place, right time. But there is no way in 2010 that you knew that 10 years later you'd be running a huge global wine community when you launched this app for an app store that was a toy at the time and a use yeah. case that was like not in the top 10 or the top 100 or top 1,000 probably at Apple headquarters and they were thinking about, hey, we just made an amazing new smartphone with an app store. <laughs> There's just no way. What were you thinking? Like, what? How, I, I, you, were you just a, like wasting your time? You had a free weekend or something? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really it's a really good question. Um, I think so. So first of all, we were not the first to market here. Really, they the word was somebody did some research around that time, and they said there were around 600 wine apps in the app store already. So it just flowed in. Uh, but but I think my sort of basic philosophy on this is really not that complicated is hey is this important enough a problem that people are willing to install an app and use an app to solve that problem for me personally i felt yes definitely and then the next question is hey how many people do you think that 
that feel the same way, like unbiased, say, yeah, it's worth it. And that was always the philosophy. Can we build a product that people are willing to use in this way? And we thought, yes, and we just kept going. Um, we felt there was a no, real no, need no, for this. On, hold up, hold up, hold up. You're sticking with your story here. That this was <laughs> very loyal a very you. rational, top-down, total addressable market, you know, core, high-intensity need with enough users globally that this thing should be built, right? I mean, that's 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 the basic framework uh, <laughs> for starting a business in any category. But that, that is really the origin story. You didn't stumble over something. You, you, you like mapped out a thousand ideas and you decided this is the one or it came from like the fire inside you. And then you sought to justify it by searching for the casual wine drinking market. And that kind of got you to a big enough number. Or how, how I think, you... yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, I did look at multiple ideas. There's no doubt about that. I actually looked at several of them, but there are certain triggers here that I like. Um, I love data. I love information. And I feel like I saw something like, like, hey, this is a massive problem and nobody has the data, right? So I talked to people in the industry that actually knew something about this and they all said the same thing. Like, hey, man, you're not going to build this. It's not going to happen. It's impossible to build this. There are too many wines out there. You can do something, just focus on Burgundy and just do Burgundy. I said, no, I want to do all the wines in the world. So so for me, yes, I, I we, we love to solve this massively big problem, which I, we just went for it and 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 it would it took a long time to make a meaningful product, but we felt like we made sort of baby steps all the time. Huh. Okay. So let's see if I'm understanding properly. One was a an inciting incident, as they say in the language of, of storytelling and of, of 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 quests. You know, when the hero sets out the the smartphone, the app store, you know something big is going to happen. The second thing was a very specific uh, personal feeling that this was a problem, yeah. and and a judgment about that. A third is. As you thought a bit about wine consumption around the world, you're thinking, man, there are a lot of people that would probably <laughs> like out. to know more, yeah. but they've never said it. Like no one's ever right. made a product for these people because there wasn't even a product, even that one percent level of quality to be able to answer this question, right? I mean, you buy any book about wine and it's only going to cover like zero point five percent of all the wines. It's useless to you, and so no one would go if you interview people in the grocery store. Hey, do you want to have some kind of oracle that tells you about everything? It'd be hard for them to even imagine what the answer is, and then I guess. A further point is another big macro gesture around technology and, and the trends in the world is that this was a data problem. Yeah. It was a data problem, and you could tell because there's a couple of guys with big noses that seem to know everything, and no one else knows anything. And you're like, robots need to get to this question. Yeah. So some of these like gestures, some are feeling, some are strategic, and some of them are purely quantitative. And this was your conviction that this early time in 2010. Does this seem like a reasonable summary? Yeah, I, th I think it is. I think what we realized quickly also was that that it was so when we started looking at what is it that people want uh, and we figured out really really quickly it was all about the data it was all about it was a when i'm as a when i'm a user here i have one bottle in front of me the only thing i care about is can you solve the problem of knowing if this bottle is good or bad so it's pretty simple so focus everything on that and our philosophy there was like we're only going to focus on that. The app did not look really, it looked pretty bad. It wasn't really good, but we focused everything on the data. It's about finding out where the biggest pain is and just going for that. Wow. But you said there were 600 other apps or 599 yeah. other apps. I mean, that that defies the standard analysis. It, it seems like madness to to launch the 600th app in a nascent category. Yeah, I think you have to have a little bit of confidence right there and say, no, no, we think we can do better. 
uh, obviously when you have 600 uh, like there be 20 30 maybe 40 that are seriously going after a similar thing um, mm -hmm. the others are like smaller region and whatever they have um, so so you have okay, to have so confidence I'm not afraid of, of taking crap. a category and going for it no, well oh, I mean, it helps if 90% it helps a lot if 90% is crap like there are all these little silly free apps with like yeah, two exactly. lines in them or just whatever thing so who cares about them but 10% yeah. or maybe 5% 30 of them are um, strong or well thought out or, or interesting yeah. and how did you think about that map did you just think let me make my thing that I know is going to be amazing or did you sort of categorize what those guys are doing and, and sort of analyze their strengths and weaknesses. Do you have some sense if you look back now? Because I'm going to guess that those 30 are not all in business right now. No, uh, no. They, they, updates they, every month. <laughs> no, there are very few of them. I think we, I, I, so first of all, I think, I think they had the wrong approach. Uh, I think knowing your audience is incredibly important. And if you're a wine expert and like to take notes about wine and say, this is earthy and licorice whatever, you're going to build an app for that. And that was a big thing for a lot of these apps was that it was wine experts building stuff for themselves. It was a notebook. I, it was like a journaling app. Exactly. Because I mean, that concept has existed for a long time, right? And people do that. It's great. It's just not a big audience. It's just and, what and we, it's not using the distinctive capability of like the, the data, the network effects, the global reach. Exactly. And we I look, I, I've had I've done talks recently where I looked at our old PowerPoints back then, where we sort of defined the user and, and an example of that we, we put in writing, we said our users probably don't have a wine cellar. They probably have three bottles on the kitchen table. That was like the definition of our users. And that's an incredibly important thing to do. Find out who your user is, and then you make the right decision on what, how you build your product. It reminds me, I'm sure you've thought about it through this lens of uh, the folks that overserve their customer, you know, in that classic Christensen uh, disruption framework. The, the wine snobs were using apps to be even more snobby. And yeah. you were thinking maybe now the app actually can be handy to me at Friday, 5 p.m. when I'm rushing to pick up a few things to take to a dinner. That's exactly what we want to do, like quickly and, and not complicated, right? So people that love wine but do not want to turn it into a hobby. Maybe they will later, but not right now. And the, the, the big behavior, okay, so you come through with this thrust of an idea at a much bigger addressable universe, which has actually a radically simplified use case. In some ways, it's harder because you need every wine to be spoken yeah. for, but in some ways, it's easier they just want a quick read, what's good, what's bad, what goes with this, what goes with that, you know, is this too much money or is this a good price? Things like that, right? Yeah. And so you have this, this core thrust of an idea, you release the app, it's the first day, the first month, the first year. Um, talk to me about, talk to me about the, the first moments. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, you know, pretty quiet, right? Uh, <laughs> because nothing really happens. And uh, it, it actually, so we, we launched sort of uh, late 10, early 11. Before that, we had done this small competition to see if we can get some wine labels. We need to have seen these wines before we can build data on top of them. So we did a small competition to try and get people to send, um, to send pictures. And I went into local retailers and just took thousands and thousands of pictures of wine labels. And then Amazing. we had a team in India to put data on all of these. Uh, so obviously when we launched, we we don't not not a lot happens like so then you just try and and send emails to people use social media whatever you can and um, and we built it slowly all our focus back then was how many wines can you identify 
And, you know, we, we said we started at 30%, we probably started at 10 and then we just built and built and built and gets, you know, thousands of wines added to the database. Um, and it huh. took us a long and, and time before it became really good. So you're bootstrapping, I mean, and it's sort of one part social network. I mean, I'm sure your vision was that a lot of it would be user generated or yeah. um, user enhanced information over time. <clears throat> yeah. And it's one part information marketplace with like a supply side and a demand side. So you launch the app. There's no supply of information, no. so you got to no. bootstrap that and go hustle and put in as much as you can to get a critical mass. Yeah. And only when you had enough demand did you start seeing user engagement, or even that didn't do it on its own? You it's started having a ton of labels yeah. in there, but people didn't believe you that you would be useful. I think, so, so the thing about uh, maybe any software product, definitely apps, is that the bar is raised every single day. Like I sometimes like tell the story of Uber when they launched, like you click the app and the car arrives in 15 minutes. You think this is magic. You're in San Francisco now. It doesn't arrive within three minutes. It's crap. So, yeah. so the bar just increases all the time. And, and that was the same for us that nobody had really done this before. So we did these small hacks to keep people engaged. So for instance, they scan a bottle and we don't know it. Then we popped up right away and said, hey, we don't know this bottle. And then we went straight to India. We had people matching it manually. And then we came back to people and said, hey, we've now looked at your bottle and this is what it is. And people said, oh, wow, they did that for me? Amazing. I definitely want to try this again. But actually the product didn't really work that well, but we managed to keep them engaged. Okay, at least I'll try again. That's amazing. Yeah, like when LinkedIn tells you your friend has joined. They don't bother doing that anymore, do they? No, no I think they're all there. <laughs> so in this like bootstrap, it's, it's okay, so it's really interesting. So you're doing, I think, a lot of the classic, I mean, basically growth hacking is what yeah. you were doing in 2010, 11. You might not have been using that, and maybe even in 12. Um, at what point over that first few years would you say you felt that you were big? Yeah, uh, in the beginning, definitely never. It's not till... 2012 that we felt something happened. So uh, the first versions there were really simple. It, it was, you know, we get a little bit tech care. They were hybrids, which means that it was like a simple app frame and then HTML inside and, and really didn't work that well. But we did that to be able to, uh, to build quickly and learn quickly what people wanted. Um, so the user experience wasn't that great. Uh, when we got to April 2012, we received a little bit of money to start sort of investing a little bit. And we, uh, we started building a native, or uh, we released the first native version of the app, which is a major upgrade. And that's when, at the same time, data gets better and better, obviously. Data gets better every single day, just slightly. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, 
that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. First couple of years you get there based on sweat and energy. Yeah. Uh, and the first investment happens almost, it sounds like about 15 months after the app has been in the store, right? You said end of yeah. 11, all of 12, uh, end of 10, all of 11 and beginning of 12. And I'm sure the whole time you're like trying to raise money. You finally yeah, yeah. Get it done I, had, I had a big angel come in early that helped. And then we got the first ah. institutional in, in the, by the end of what am I saying? 11. Yeah, I love it. So your first angel is a true believer, and, yeah, exactly. and you're a little lucky, but it's also someone who's ready to take it to make it be yeah, a visionary. Someone, and someone knew, by the yeah. time the first like venture firm or somebody invests, you've accomplished something. You've convinced somebody. I mean, thank God. Yeah. Right? I mean, you took something that was a, a crazy scheme, and you didn't. It sounds like even at that moment you didn't believe it was big, but you found someone with conviction at that point. And on, on what basis did they have conviction? I think I think it was based, even though it was small, there was some growth uh, and me being a second timer. So for the first angel, the only angel we got on board was also a big name. So so the angel was somebody we knew already. Uh, Janos Fries is one of the two founders of Skype. And mm. I had I knew him from before and I, I flew out to London and said, hey, Janos, you need to uh, put some money. We're going to do this. Um, and he seen us build stuff before and he loved wine. He said, sure, I'll do it. And he invested on nothing. Like there was, we'd started to build some data. There was no app, no nothing. And he invested. And then we, even though we were tiny, the institutional very early stage investor could see that, Hey, something is growing here at least. And they were early stage. They knew that if, if it became big, they wouldn't be able to invest. So that's their window to do something. Interesting. So you're sort of in business, like your very first one is a sort of people plus vision. Yeah. Plus I guess there's a, there's an element of like, you know, I don't know. Uh, Scandinavian, Nordic, North Atlantic camaraderie, sure. perhaps that helped with some yeah. of the rapport and familiarity there. Nordic you mafia, yourself, yeah, yeah, you're a member of the mafia that helps you to <laughs> raise money usually. And then, and then you have something going, and it's it's sort of law of small numbers, but um, the TAM seems huge, and, and the growth seems promising. So you get this first money, and at that point you don't feel big. But I was searching for the moment when you felt yeah. big. I mean, now you feel big. I mean, there's no one bigger than you. No, no, exactly. In, in the category I, I, you're working now. I remember a specific like, uh, and this was a Saturday, uh, and I'm sitting with my co-founder Ties there, and we were like super excited because they we had three thousand people that had used the app in a day, and I said to Ties wow. like, "Do you really think that we can get this to a million? And I said, "Hell yeah, we can!" And and that was just like a moment right there, like, "Damn yeah, that's true." Like if three thousand people can see value, it it could be a million too, right? Uh, but going back to when when we felt something was in, in when we launched this new version in in April of 2012. It's a combination of now the data is better, and the the core of the product also gets better. We spend a little bit of time of bug fixing. We start the growth, but we we get to like July August there. It's like a rocket that takes off. It just goes so, so fast. Obviously, going into Q4, too, where the, the season is with you, too. So December was just, just went crazy. Of that year? Yeah, of 2012. And so you go from a few thousand a day to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? Yeah, so we, I think, yeah, I think we, 
the total scans for December was like a million scans for the entire month. So it was just it was just growing so fast, even though the numbers are not, you know. Yeah, so you bigger. were ten times bigger in the space of eight months from three. Yeah, actually, to like sixteen times. Yeah. On average. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, I mean that's huge. Yeah. I mean, but compared now to that same time in March 2012, you're almost a thousand times bigger. Exactly. Which is crazy. <laughs> crazy, right? So at that moment where the stick started getting steep, were you spending to grow? No. So uh, we've never done that. Uh, we are um, uh, very, very con- okay. When you say spend, you probably mean hey, buying a user, getting them in the door. We we yeah. never done that. We we uh, th- we're also lucky that we're in a in a space where people are real real life social and share the tools they use. Uh, so it's mm. still the case today that that ninety nine percent of our users are completely organic, uh, and it's people sitting at a table and showing off the vino. Which is amazing. They open their phone and download the app in little clumps yeah. of one and two per dinner party. Exactly. And thousands of dinner parties around the world yeah. where people are showing this app. How amazing. How amazing. Which we appreciate. And so, I mean, in a way, as I as I listen to you, it reminds me of the age of growth hacking. Um, <laughs> which some observers in, in, in recent times, the end of two thousand eighteen, early two thousand nineteen, I've been noticing, they've been declaring that growth hacking is over now. <laughs> I wonder what's your feeling. I mean, I, it sounds like you co-invented it, right? Because growth hacking was not a thing. It was called marketing in the early 2000s. And in that period, the early Facebook period, early App Store period, this is when guys like you built huge, huge businesses using a bunch yeah. of techniques that got all written down and more or less competed away to zero in 2015, 16, 17, when it turned into some kind of, you know, mass-produced art form. Yeah. Uh, do you think, what do you, what do you think about the whole, the story of growth hacking? Is it, I think, do you I think, think it's yeah. over? Was it, real? Uh, uh, was it ever real? So I think there are different approaches to it. I think we used a very, very specific one um, uh, because uh, Thais, my co-founder, I are very product focused. So whatever we call that, so uh, we used the product side to do growth hacking. Uh, let me just give you an idea about that in the early days was that that when we built this app in basically HTML back then, we released every single week. So with HTML, it's super flexible. We just do two platforms at the same time. Um, and we just added features. And then we looked at these numbers, just tiny, tiny changes in them. And I still remember Janos, uh, like early days, we, we said to him, hey, numbers are still small. And I said, but we're still getting 100 downloads a day. And he said to me, yeah, but you should know, honey, that what actually happens is that the 100 becomes a 200, the 200 becomes 500, 500 becomes 1,000. And that's it. Like you improve the product every single day, look at the numbers, and they will start trending upwards. That was the growth yeah, that I mean, we did. Well, for sure. And, and that's, the school, that's one of the, the big schools, right? The, the, you know, the sort of product hacker yeah. Um, and, and the engagement mechanic that you mentioned is a great example of that. It's like, uh, we know that we don't yet deliver on the full promise of the product today, but let's show like the first little clue yeah. that we will. You know, and you improve that. Fails, do you serve an empty page or do you serve a send me an email when you have my product page or put me on the waiting list page, right? Exactly. And, and then you deliver the answer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, but, but, but can it work now? I mean, the, the bar has been rising in all app categories. Yeah. Uh, if I launch today a product where I want to take on a big information marketplace, maybe not with strong competitors, let's say it's an empty area, um, and, uh, and I come up empty on 99% of searches, I don't know if those moves would work anymore. Yeah, I, I definitely think they would. And, and here's my philosophy behind that. It, it's people, a lot of people say to us, hey, you couldn't do those things right now. But my philosophy has always been and still is, 
if you are perceived as the best product, then you have a shot. What that means is that you might have a really crappy product, but if you're the best out there, okay, if you're best and you're getting better, people can stick with you or enough people will stick with you to the next round. And you will lose more people, obviously. But if this is like, this is the only product that's trying to do this, well, I will give them another chance. I come back three weeks later and it's better. I'm going to stay with them. Let's ride together to the promise. Exactly. Be humble around it and build a community. I definitely think that can be done still. But you have to find a space, a slice of this where you can be the best. And in this business, I guess, by being the best, you've become huge. I I mean, you only were hoping to be a million, and now it's millions a month or millions a day of people doing scans. And, you know, it would be amazing to explore some of the other dimensions of what it's like to now have created this sort of search-driven media and community business and and the other places it can go. But I I hope our our listeners will get Vivino and and share it over um, cocktails with friends, because I want to ask you about the Faroe Islands in your in your your restaurant there, and ask you if if you need to be big to win, and what is it like to win and stay small? Coming from a small place, you must have some thoughts yeah. about that, right? I mean, you're you're talking in the language of the Silicon Valley tribe, the kind of entrepreneurial tribe where be the best, be number one, get better every day, and then be the biggest in the world. And this restaurant, what's this restaurant? So this is, uh, uh, it's called Cox, K-O-K-S, um, and it's, uh, the cuisine is, I think they call it modern Nordic, if you know, heard about Noma, which is the uh, the Danish uh, Copenhagen-based restaurant. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and it, that's it's similar style, but with like, a local. It's got to have some, it's got to have some um, benefit or some positive momentum from the, the Rene Rizbecki restaurant in, uh, exactly. in Copenhagen too, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, but it's local. So everything is sourced locally and, and so on. So amazingly experimental. And uh, you should definitely look it up. I think it's going to be pretty hard to get a table these days. But uh, but if you ever get the chance, definitely. So to the question back to, like, if you're small, how do you sort of, uh, how do you beat others? And I my philosophy on that, both in business, but also in, in a place like the Faroe Islands where things are small is is always that, you shouldn't compete where others compete. You just you need to find a new thing. It's like when you, uh, well, like people are into soccer in the Faroe Islands. Like, hey, we have this, there are 50,000 people. There's still a stadium with 7,000 people. But that's nothing to show off because somebody else is always going to win that battle. So you have to be different. Like, take this restaurant, for instance. It, it's, it's located completely isolated next to this beautiful lake, and it's all green in a house that's built like hundreds of years ago. And that is very unique and very, very hard to compete with. So you have to find your own sort of battlefields. And, and taking that back to startups, if you're competing with a big, um, uh, like a, one of the big guys, like an incumbent of some kind, then try and find something they can't do. Try and find something that's out of it. The, they have a, they're locked on a business model. You do something that they can't do. That's always been, uh, been my philosophy as a smaller guy. And in a way, that is the natural advantage of being small, right? Because once exactly. someone is big, the thing that they can't be is small. Yeah, they're locked <laughs> into it, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, at, to be the restaurant at the end of the earth that makes food that's only found there, uh, no one else can, can yeah. copy that. Exactly. But it is a powerful and instructive lesson for people starting um, new projects and trying to take them far. I guess you can build a fortress at the top of the, at the, top of the world, uh, and it can be a, a sold-out waitlist restaurant yeah. too. 
You can. Maybe it's not only about total reach. No, not at all. Not at all. Honey, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you for uh, joining me on In the Now. I, I was Such so a pleasure. Thank you. Interested with what we spoke about.